Hello ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the GameDev.TV Community Podcast. I'm your host KB, and this podcast brings you the audio experience of GameDev.TV. Now, let's get right into the podcast. Aaron Stackpole with Glitter Greed. Glitter Greed, yeah. Or very, very early alpha version of it, really just uh, working on building the network components of it here. I, I like to tell the joke that what I'm doing now is something that was mastered about 40 years ago, and I'm recreating it from scratch just because, hey, why not? Uh, <laughs> if, uh, if, if you want to know specifically what I'm talking about, uh, I mean, what I'm basically duplicating right now is just Internet Relay Chat or IRC from, like, you know, forever ago. Uh, yeah. But anyway, a little bit more about this. So uh, I had mentioned earlier that uh, that this is a solution that I'm building for a game called Glitter Greed. So my designer actually built a board game called Glitter Greed. It's a four-player game where you uh, collect gems of different colors, and the the objective essentially is to fill out your your collections, five different collections of four different gems. And uh, there's some other fancy mechanics uh, that make the game more interesting than just collecting gems. Uh, there's a targeting ring that does some fancy logic to to knock out other people's gems, and you can also get shields and health stones and other things to protect your gems. So um, I built that game actually here, just the basic logic for it, in about six hours, uh, one weekend up on the Appalachian Trails in Maine, sitting next to a lake, just because, hey, you know, seemed like something fun to do. It's just text-based, but the entire point of it is that it actually goes through and figures out, you know, each of the different pieces of logic that were necessary to actually build the game. That's mm. not the more interesting part of it, though. Uh, I was also showing you, like, uh, so this project right here has, you know, Clay Engine, which has been kind of my internal branding for the engine that I've been building. It's largely based off of the DirectX Toolkit has a nice, you know, nice set of interfaces for audio and uh, different graphics things that you might want to do. So 2D stuff here in Sprite Badge and Sprite Font and a bunch of helper classes for primitives and basically helping you build your DirectX uh, rendering pipeline. Um, the Glitter Greed client itself is built uh, based off of DirectX 11 uh, template project um, and my own, you know, little bit of customization to it from there. Uh, I'll, I'll get into that here in a second. Uh, just wanted to show like each of the different pieces of this that I'm now building into something that's a more coherent client uh, has actually been built over the course of, of several years. Um, and you actually, when you look at my source control here, you can see under Clay Engine Project, there's like a bunch of different versions of this. And this is yeah. all prototyping a lot of different pieces of it. Um, when I get into here, this is kind of the current project that's, you know, the real one. Um, there's reference, you know, stuff from SDKs, you know, code samples from different places, code from books and all kinds of stuff. So that's kind of my research project. And then under personal here, I've even got two more copies of, <laughs> of the entire Clay Engine project because a lot of these things were just used for for prototyping different kinds of things. I uh, built this voxel edit project just the other day as I was starting to dive into how to actually make my voxel editor at some point here. Um, what I'll do is I'll run the uh, let's see it's under Glitter Greed project right um, Clay Engine. 
Clay Engine Output, I think is what I'm looking for. No, I think I went too deep. Output, there we go. Debug. Uh, do I have a client here in there? Yeah, so, um, so right now this is uh, set to run the GlitterGreed server. Uh, so now that's running. I'm, I'm not confident this will run without crashing. <laughs> but if I run the GlitterGreed client right now, oh, yeah, there it is. looks like it made a connection. Um, so this is just a very simple prototype that's going on right now. This this console is attached to the Glitter Greed window right here, which is just a basic basic DirectX window with uh, with um, some two D graphics drawn on it. So the the <laughs> the gray or the darkened box is just one single texture at fifty percent, you know, black texture at fifty percent transparency, and then there's four um, static messages uh, just printed on the screen at those four locations in four different sizes. So this demonstrates uh, drawing 2D graphics and also drawing 2D text. Uh, if I type something over here, it'll send that packet over to the server. The server then echoes it back to me and then, and then my client puts that into that string. If I type some other things, other things, it'll do the same thing and it'll move them into kind of a little queue cascading. Cascading things are neat. And here's another test. Uh, another test, maybe another, another test. So you can see how it kind of, oh, did that one break? It probably broke because I like pressed the backspace key and stuff. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I'll just break out of that and, and, and stop this. But yeah, so yeah. I mean, there's, you know, it's, 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 you see what it did though. So that's, you know, basically the, the client as it stands right now, I, I send messages to and from the, this is actually live over the internet. Even the connection that it's making is actually essentially to my router here. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I've, I've successfully tested this from Sweden, Belgium and upstate New York, you know, three places that are, you know, generally as exotic as, as each other. Uh, <laughs> that's the the other three people on my team. <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, did you travel there? Mm -mm. Yeah, so we've got a, one of our artists is a lady in Switzerland. We've got another artist that uh, lives in upstate New York. And then uh, our designer is a Belgium kid. Nah, I shouldn't call him a kid. He's like almost 30 or something. <laughs> to me, that's a kid. Still. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a kid. So yeah, let's uh, let's dive into actually the the client here a little bit because uh, this is you know this hasn't really changed for a while. It's pretty it's pretty firm. I, this this actually takes some techniques that I learned from um, I think it was the Nvidia game. What did they call it? Game kit? No game. Oh, they had some term for it, but they had basically a, a you know projects that you could get that kind of demonstrated how they would instantiate uh, you know the platform and things like that. And the thing that was interesting about it was that it was clear that the reason why they did it that way was so that they could have their um, their template game you know client software you know that rendered each of their libraries um, running on multiple platforms. So you could specify Win32, you could specify Linux, you could specify Mac. It used basically the same code and just used the proper platform code. Uh, I'm not that fancy, <laughs> nor not that good. So uh, I'm just using a basic, uh, I don't know, basic Windows 
yeah, Windows uh, API to create a window, and then I'm I'm creating a game object, uh, passing into it the the title of the you know. So if I change this to two and then recompiled it, the the game client that popped up would have a different title bar. Uh, it gives me a default resolution here, so I can specify that. Most of the rest of this code is actually really annoying. Um, I, I describe kind of the center, you know, the central piece of the game is the kernel. And so my kernel class is actually split up into, um, oh, sorry, it's actually down here. Kernel class is split up into a header, a class, and then also an inline file. And uh, this was this was something I actually learned from looking at the way that Microsoft does things is, is inlines, um, the way that I'm using it is probably not what you'd say, what you'd describe as conventional. Um, <laughs> I'm... I'm I'm using an inline file to include a bunch of code that I just don't want to put in the other code file because it's just annoying. It's it's these functions right here. They're not technically inline functions, but these functions are are annoying enough that I just wanted them not to be in my main header file um, because they're only used internally. So the main header file has all of this. So here's like the rows that you saw that were being displayed. Like I said, totally hard-coded everything, you know, the background. Um, but it does leverage my, you know, my custom sprite class that I built. And, uh, and, and you know, it does the job, basically. Uh, the, the kernel is instantiated over here. I first call the in initialized platform, which calls that code from the inline file. And... Um, if it doesn't return successfully, then it exits out of the program. That just uh, that just like instantiates the the com objects or the com API in Windows, so that I can uh, create DirectX objects and stuff. And it does a few other things that aren't really all that important. I then make the kernel object for the game, and um, and then we actually have to create a window. So you'll note that I've got this stuff in this squiggly bracket block here. And the reason why that is is because the final result of this is basically what's a, what's called a, a handle or a, a kernel object. Uh, as, it, as it is, it's a void pointer. Um, but essentially, yeah, so once it creates the window, the window itself is handled by Windows, the operating system. So I don't really have to do anything with it other than just keep track of the handle to the window. And so once I've created, so this creates the class that kind of defines what the window will look like. Uh, I build a rectangle and then pass it that, you know, those values. So this rectangle, these values here are actually what gets created in the rectangle here. And then I pass, yeah, I actually create the window. I give it the size that I want it to be. And, uh, and then I initialize my kernel by passing it a copy of the handle. So now the kernel knows what the handle for the for the window is, and I can then just forget all of this nonsense that we just did here. So thus we just close this block and can all of that memory off the stack because we now have the operating system is managing the handle. The next thing that we do is then we just manage a we just watch a message loop. So once you have um, once you have your window instantiated, you basically just go into a loop right here that takes any messages that are coming off of the uh, coming out of the operating system and checks them to see if if it's exit. <laughs> basically, as long as it's not quit, then we just yeah. dispatch it into the kernel. So the kernel actually calls a tick function, which does more of the timing logic. I'm, I'm not going to bother getting into that, but uh, 
yeah, it either passes the message into the window or it, or it calls the tick. Now, this right here is actually the process that handles that callback. Um, I don't remember exactly where I do it, but there's somewhere in the kernel initiation initialization where I give it. To, oh, yeah, that's right. It's actually it's in it's in here when we're creating the window class. We tell it where the callback is, what the callback function is. So that's typically done as a window process uh, function like this, uh, named like that. You know, this is again kind of the the Microsoft C standard naming for a lot of these things. It's annoying that I even have to do any of this ugly crap, to be honest. Reminds me of Unreal syntax. Yes, yes, you will notice that it is relatively similar to Unreal syntax. It's it's what you would describe as older C style or what I would describe as older C style. Microsoft has a very unique and standard code style. Unreal Engine was originally built as a Windows exclusive, you know, engine, you know, so it conforms to a lot of the Microsoft standards for code code practices, code naming and stuff like that. As you can see, if you look over on the right-hand side here, my code does not quite match that same style. <laughs> but we'll get into it. Yeah, yeah. And and we'll get into kind of some of the, or at least I'd like to get into some of the some of the technical challenges with dealing with you know a, an older C-style API and uh, and modern code as well. So we got these messages here, and this is just a bunch of different messages that'll come in from the operating system. If it matches any of these messages, then I do stuff. Uh, the only really important stuff to note is really down here. Um, this right here, basically, there's a class in, in the DirectX toolkit called keyboard, and so I have to make sure that whenever I get messages, such as key down, system key down, key up, and system key up, that I pass those values into my static keyboard class. Uh, so that I can then use that in my update logic to check, like, you know, is this key down, then, you know, do blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, that's most of the client right there. It doesn't really do a whole lot, um, you know, as far as this part is. I, I kind of consider this, like, the platform part of the code, right? And the kernel itself is more the 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 real <laughs> code, as it were, you know, what actually happens inside uh, the game engine or the, the client as it's running. Lots and lots of threads, lots of different ways that we're handling things, loading content, uh, you know, resetting pointers, you know, all kinds of stuff that we do in here. So there's the, like, the actual code. And this is an interesting blend, I think, of, of modern code styles and older code styles. So there are Windows functions that'll give you things like, uh, like, you know, the, the current timestamp as, as an example. There are ways that you can do that with the Windows API, but I prefer to use the C++ standard template library when possible for any function calls because then they're innately cross-platform. While obviously I'm doing a ton of stuff here that's you know very Windows specific, I'll get into this because this is the Winsox API is what this is uh, here in a second. While I'm obviously doing a bunch of stuff here that's that's you know Windows Windows specific, I, I try to use standard template library functionality whenever I can. Side note: very much looking forward to whenever the um, C++ standard gains the networking library so that I can get rid of most of this stuff and replace it with STL stuff. <laughs> it'll be a great day. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be a great day. They're estimating it'll probably be 2020 or 2023. Either the next standard that comes out or the one after it'll have it. Anyway, yeah, so 
uh, since I don't have that, in the meantime, I get to use what's called the Winsock 2 API. And that is the reminder that I only have one hour until Rise of Star Wars, or Rise of Skywalker, so I only mm-hmm. got about 45 minutes left here. We'll, we'll make good use of it. Perfect. Um, yeah, so this is the Winsocks 2 API, and uh, you, you basically pass it this value 2.2 to tell it what version of the API to use. You, you feed it this Winsocks API data object. Again, you know, I, I try to lean towards functional programming whenever possible. And one of the, you know, cardinal rules of, of functional programming is no side effects. So pretty much every time I have to touch the Windows API, I get a dirty feeling in my bones because I have to do this kind of stuff where, where I create and initialize an empty object using, you know, modern initialization techniques, right? And then I have to call this W, you know, this API function with a reference to an external object. And that just makes my skin crawl. <laughs> Anyway, such is life. Um, pretty straightforward, pretty easy to do this stuff. Uh, w- what we're actually looking at here is the client network module, which uh, when we actually get into the kernel, uh, where do I where do I do it? I'm sure there's an initialization here somewhere that actually, oh yeah, yeah, huh, right there. So uh, just as as the kernel is initialized, it it uh, you know creates the DirectX 11 devices, which has kind of all of the COM objects are in there. Um, for you know, grabbing your pointer to your your video card memory and and whatever else you need to, um, we do kind of an old school pointer style callback here, which I'm definitely going to change that code around at some point. But that was the template code. Uh, the template code just puts callbacks uh, from the device when when the operating system tells you things like the device, uh, you know, you, the the game window has been minimized. You know, or we, we've lost focus and stuff like that so that you can, you know, set your game logic up to to respond to that. Like, you know, when you're minimized or something, you don't need to be run and draw calls, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so we make, uh, first we make this uh, thread safe buffers object and we pass this to pretty much every, every thread that we deal with in here. The idea being that, um, uh, well, I don't really need this on the client side. It's more useful on the server side, but uh, it's kind of serving dual functionality. And a lot of this was, again, prototyping. The idea behind this is that I've got two different threads, an input thread and the client networking module. You can see these two structs up here. These are actually thread classes. Um, you, They both share an object. Um, for for exchanging information amongst amongst themselves, and so you have to make sure that that if you're reading or writing, you know, into any of those values, that you follow the the proper procedure of locking a mutex, changing the object, and then unlocking the mutex. And every every thread within my program respects that that standard. That is. Now, I, I know that I'm going to have places where I'm going to have, you know, 15, 20 threads simultaneously trying to read or write from different objects. And so I have to keep track of those with mutexes and make sure that that those threads are safe to make changes to and read and write those values. Um, another one of these, I don't use the Windows threading stuff. I use the STL threading. Yay! Uh, <laughs> 
So uh, all this does is, oh, hey, you know, that's actually not supposed to be the IP address. <laughs> that's oh, really? the IP address of my router. <laughs> oh, I'm going to get hacked now. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we use uh, STL threads. Uh, so I instantiate a thread. I give it this as a functor is what this is. Um, so it calls operator parentheses on the struct input thread. And so that starts this functor as a thread. Once I get within it, I... I clear the console input, and then I just start a loop where I wait for key presses to come into the console. The client network module is similar. It starts up, um, I give it a, a promise. The promise actually is, I guess I did actually create promises for both of these, right? So the promise is used for shutting the thread down later on. I can, uh, I can from the main thread, I can, I can set a value on the promise, and then the thread will respond to that however I'd like. In this case, I use it for shutting the threads down um, safely before exiting the, exiting the application. Um, I also pass this uh, some parameters, uh, some fancy fancy pants parameters here. So this is uh, what I was saying about like this register device callbacks here, this using a pointer. This way of doing it with the input callback here, uh, I'm actually passing it a function object from the STL um, that is the callback. And so I can do the same things with it. It's still a void pointer, essentially. Um, but it's wrapped within, you know, some some STL safety type code in my mind that makes it, you know, a better idea to, to do your callbacks that way. Uh, I don't know that I'm actually even using that, to be honest. Uh, there's probably, let's see... Uh, what this one does is this actually provides a reference to the scope of this. So there may be something in here where I'm where I'm touching an object uh, from from the scope of the uh, of the of this class here. Anyway, uh, not all that interesting. All this does, like I said, is just reads reads messages uh, off of the console, drops them into. Uh, into the thread safe buffer. So the version one of this stuff, and this is where we actually get to dive into the into this. So we have instantiated thread safe buffers. We've passed a pointer to those buffers here. And the original version one of these buffers, this thread safe buffer had these version one here. This was just a console mutex, a console string, a network mutex and a network string. So I'm using those when you saw the client running. The console string is is where I read the messages that are coming back from the server, and the network string is where I write the messages to the server in the first place. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that's kind of cool. Uh, the networking module, we'll get back into this again. Um, we did a startup here, and then uh, we connect the socket. Whatever the string is that we passed into it, uh, there's some there's some weird initialization stuff you got to do for sockets. We'll just suffice it to say that what I do here is I pass that string into this function right here, and it returns what's called a, uh, a socket address object, which we then <clears throat> which I then use to actually connect to the server. Um, so I. Yeah, that's how I did this. So there's a couple of, you know, like state-related type things that I need to do here. 
Uh, I've been experimenting with a couple of different ways that I want to do state management. Uh, this this client ended up being simple enough that I could just uh, that I could just do it like this. So basically, when the client network module starts, it's a new thread running in, you know within the client process. All it does is it just tries to connect. So it calls this internal function right here, socket connect, which returns a boolean. So the socket connect will either succeed or fail and return true or false. So essentially this lot, this loop will just sit here and it'll try to connect. This amount right here is 150 millisecond uh, lag time is what this value is. So that's constant WSA polling rate. If, uh, if my future has not been signaled, then I'm going to break the loop. Or excuse me, if my future has not been signaled and I've successfully done the socket connect object, then it'll break out of the loop. <laughs> Let me see if I you know, follow the logic here because this is a little twisty. So we get a Boolean return from socket connect. Mm -hmm. If we succeed, right, then we run this code. If we fail, then we don't, right? So the only time that this code will work is when socket connect is true. So it'll basically sit here and try to run socket connect every 150 milliseconds until it succeeds, and then it'll finally break out of this loop and move into the next phase, right? So if the server is not running, it basically just sits here and tries to connect over and over and over and over again. Once it connects, you know, like if I ran the server while the client was up, uh, I suppose I could demonstrate that, but I'm not going to. Um, it would eventually then connect and then it moves into the next state. So I had actually coded a lot of this out with like a formal state machine, like I created a structure to handle the different states for the for the client, like waiting to connect, uh, connected, waiting to send messages, sending a message, you know, disconnecting. I had all of these things like in like an enumerator, you know, an enum class that had all of these different state values in it. And it was a whole bunch of extra code that didn't really do anything useful. So I ended up just getting rid of all of that and extracting the code from within each of those states and just putting them in line here. At, at some point, maybe I'll need to put, you know, a little bit better state management in here, but the client is super super trivial so there's not any need to do anything super super fancy with it so i just yeah just coded it into a solid loop so this one again this loop here basically what we're doing here is as long as every time that we loop through here as long as we have timed out then we will continue okay so you got to think this is this is again kind of the the weird way about dealing with promises and futures. So the the thread that owns this thread, the thread that owns the client network module has an object that's called a promise. I can set the value of the promise and what will happen is the future in this thread will then be signaled and its status will not be timeout. So if I have signaled the thread it will not be a timeout, which will cause it to break out of this loop, shut down, close the sockets, clean up the Winsox API, and exit. So as long as I have not signaled the future, it will timeout, and then it will run this loop of logic right here. Make sense? Yeah. Did you get it? All right. <laughs> 
All right. So again, another one of these, uh, you know, Winsocks API calls are old school, you know, got to pass it a raw pointer. So I give it this value. I cast it into a U long because that's what IOCTL socket wants. <laughs> this is uh, uh, the function is setting the you're setting some control values on a socket. So you can set the way that IO behaves. In this case, what I'm trying to do is I'm as I want it to. Uh, <laughs> so this is. IO non-blocking IO is what that stands for. Okay. IONB non-blocking IO. So I'm telling the socket that I want it to not block when you make certain calls. By default, when you call a socket with like a send or receive message, your program will halt and wait for the send or the receive to complete. Uh, I don't want my program to halt. I want it to just check the socket and then keep going <laughs> because I want it to do other things. Um, so I tell it, I basically tell the socket, don't block, and then that allows me to set up my logic to call send repeatedly, although ironically, when you actually get into this block, I kind of do block anyway, <laughs> because I don't complete this, this while loop until I've sent everything that's currently in the buffer. So technically, while I'm not blocking with my send calls, I'm still blocking the program execution that will sit inside of this while loop until it's actually done sending, and then it'll get out. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so that's all this thing does. It just checks to see, you know, what. so first off, we get a buffer. Uh, so let's see, this is if the network W string is, is not empty, right? So if we went over here, this was our network W string. So if there's a value in network bubble W string, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to convert it from a wide string because everything in here is Unicode wide strings, like 16, uh, 16 bit characters, uh, like using W strings for everything. So the first thing that I do is I use the, the code convert library, which uh, unfortunately is deprecated in the STL, but uh, I have it convert the, convert the wide string into a standard string. Where is it? I lost it. Yeah, that's where it is. Um, I have it convert the wide string into a standard string. Again, prototype code that's not supposed to be, you know, working. This is the place where you would put your serialization and deserialization for data objects into it. So I just put something there to kind of stub and show, you know, do a conversion of data to a buffer here, right? So then I instantiate a send buffer using my default length, which is only 256 characters. I copy the value out of the string that was passed in or that, you know, that lives in that network string. I measure the length of it and then I send it. The logic here is measure the length of the buffer and then send it. And what you get is a return from the send function. Uh, first off, you get an error code, right? Which is, uh, let's see, where do we... Uh, oh yeah, that's right. Error codes. Yeah, this is awesome. So the uh, the WSA RC, which is a WSA you know, Winsocks API result code, um, I you actually call a an API on, or an API function that tells you what the last error was. Again, functional programming. This makes my skin crawl because there is zero guarantee that the re that the response that I get back from this is going to be about the very last call that was made. There is zero guarantee of that at all. If, if I sent a send on one thread and I sent a send on another thread and I got two different result codes, the first thread might call WSA get last error after the second thread has sent something and changed that value. Side effects are dangerous. That is a bug potentially right there, right? 
anyway, <laughs> I will rant and rage about, you know, the, the bug prone nature of object oriented programming every single day. I've got some places where, where there were places where I was doing similar things like this and I made sure and wrapped that call as tight as I possibly could into, you know, into a return that actually built a tuple to respond back with all of that data in a package as one return value. Cleaner, I still have that same problem where I do, you know, the potential of calling WSA get last error um, could potentially give me a result code that's not related to the send that I had just made. So that bugs me. I don't do anything special here. I just throw if it fails. But uh, what I expect to see here is a result code called WSA E would block. That is basically saying that my send function, if I had not set the FB or FIO NBIO value up here, would block. So the send call would just pause until it was completed, um, which would not be a good thing because I'm only sending stuff if I actually have something in the buffer, right? And so it could potentially, I mean, I guess the logic here is probably protected enough that it wouldn't actually get here unless there is actually a buffer. So blocking here wouldn't be necessarily bad, but I prefer to have the non-blocking in there because if I need to, I can make changes to this code after the fact and make it do other things, you know, other than just sit there and, and pause. And then, of course, after saying this, I ironically then make the thread sleep for 15 milliseconds. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, da 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 blocks. <laughs> All right. <laughs> no, you got to understand the purpose behind this, though, right? I mean, I'm, yes, I'm doing a bunch of blocking and I'm doing a bunch of things that are that are kind of silly, but so this is a very very simple networking implementation. Um, this uses basically I, I'm just instantiating one socket object. It has 64 socket possible you know socket connections when you initialize the api and i'm just doing send and receive stuff with it a, a the more advanced version of the networking client and server for this thing will use a more advanced technique that's called uh, completion ports or io completion ports and so a lot of the structure that i'm building in this is designed for a couple of different things you know future thinking specifically being able to send large packets of send data you know, right now I'm just sending 256 bytes. It's virtually impossible for this thing to fail to send all of those bytes in one packet, right? <laughs> but at some point in the future, maybe I'm going to be sending like, you know, megabytes of data, right? You know, uh, there's there's kind of some, you know, the future plans for this networking stack that have to do with the, and, you know, an MMO that I'm trying to build. But a lot of the logic that's built in here is designed to make it so that when I get to the point of using the more advanced networking techniques, I don't have to change a whole lot of this stuff. So yeah, it seems like overkill and it does a bunch of nasty stuff here that that's not really, you know, not really useful, but it's not really useful right now. And there's that other call. <laughs> Found it finally. I had been going through and updating all of my uh, <laughs> all of my uh, codes here to you know to add the thread ID into it, but uh, missed this one. There we go. All right. Um, yeah. So then, after we're done sending the data, then we clear the buffer, and then we actually then just begin the second part of the loop. So the first one checks to see if there's anything waiting to be sent. 
The next one then says checks to see if there's anything waiting to be pulled out of the socket as a received message. So we check send and then we check receive and then we loop and then we check send and then check receive. Pretty basic, like I said. On the receive side, same deal. We expect to get a WSAE wood block value back. If we don't, then that sucks. <laughs> Uh, if it is WSAE would block, then we want it to actually just pause and loop again. Um, if the buffer value is zero, then we assume that, uh, let's see, or if the, yeah, that's right. If the buffer, if the buffer is bigger than zero, then we've received something, not doing like a fancy check on it or anything. That's, that's literally the, if there is a buffer here that's more than zero, then I'm going to do something with it. I print out what size it is. And then I actually, what I do is I call this on the thread safe buffers object, send set console W string, which should be down here, set console W string right there just copies that value into my collection in the thread safe objects. And uh, if it's, let's see, I think this one is the exit. Yeah. So if I got a zero length buffer, then that means that I've gotten a null buffer and that's telling me to shut down. So if I get a zero buffer, then I close the sockets and all of that kind of stuff. So that kind of, this gives you a, a decent overview of kind of how the logic works for the client side of the network. The server side is a lot more complicated, of course, um, but it follows a similar pattern. The main difference is that on the server side of things, uh, I'm dealing with uh, a lot more logic that needs to be put in place to handle multiple clients, right? And so the the thing that I've been working on today is actually just these thread safe channels piece here because what I realized is that what I've got here is a server where all of the clients can connect to it and they can send a message and all the server does is just echo the message back to them and so feature number two here <laughs> needs to be the ability to send messages to other people for example uh, so what I'm doing to, to start with is the concept of a channel buffer so the server will actually own some channel buffers and uh, the channel messages will keep track of like, you know, if you're, well, obviously the, the first version of this, there will only be one channel. Um, essentially what I'm doing is I'm working to expand this little block of code right here, which is extern C for zero reason whatsoever. It's just there because I felt like typing that code. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I do some funny things sometimes. Yeah, so on the server side of things, we get a little bit more complicated because we've got multiple uh, multiple clients connected. And what I want to do is I want messages that come in from the clients to go into a channel buffer. And then the server will then go through all of the clients, check their, you know, check their current um their current sequence number and send them whatever messages are in the in the channel buffer. So that's some fun logic that I'm working on right now. That's that's kind of my current current challenge. I got the send messages to and from the server working. Now we want to be able to send messages to the server and send it also to everybody else. So the main function on this one, very, very simple. Again, I'm still using the wide versions, but you know, this is more traditional modern C++ style, right? So I'm doing W main instead of like the other one had W win main, right? 
Um, this one does nothing super fancy at all. It creates a thread with the third, which is the server thread, and then I just wait for you to type X on the console. And if you do, then it tells the thread to shut down and exits. Super super trivial. Super super simple. Um, so let's get into the server network module because this is where all of the real action happens. So we're running in two different threads now. This is again a functor thread using STL techniques. Server network module is going to make a thread safe buffers. This buffer object will be shared by all of the clients. And that's where that's where a lot of the uh, the more scary stuff you know started getting into this. When we look at the thread safe buffer object, we actually have a a map with a key value and then actually a pointer to an IO buffer. So the thread safe buffers keeps track of all of the buffer objects for all of the connected clients. So at the server network module level, I have a I have basically I own an object that contains all of the communications coming into and all of the communications that I want to go out to uh, any of the clients. I had started working on actually getting the in and out logic going here. And I'm not sure at this point whether this is really the right place to do this or not. Um, first thing I do, you know, and I've built some things into here to kind of help as I was working through this logic. Uh, first thing I do is I just check to see if there are any buffers. And if there are buffers, then I look at, uh, I look to see if the IO buffer in is empty for that element. And then I push a message to their IO buffer, or I get the message from the IO buffer and then eventually I send it back out. Um, uh, this logic right here, I, you, you'll see this comment that I wrote, no technical reason to do this beyond making some of the code a little more compact. What I'm talking about is that I've done this with Lambda expressions and a tuple, and this logic could be done where I just do uh, if channel message size greater than get IO buffer sequence. But the way that I did this is I just put those two values into a tuple, so that I only had to type this part of it once. <laughs> and then I use standard apply, apply a greater than lambda to the pair. And then I get the difference you know, it's just a, a subtraction difference. So that what this does is it basically looks at, you know, what, what does the client currently have in its IO buffers? Let's say it's got 10 messages. And then it looks at the out buffers from the channel, or at least that's what it's supposed to do. Channel messages.size was the first prototype of this. It's just a vector of W strings. I, I just look at the size of that channel messages and say, um, is, is the sequence of my IO buffer out for that client less than the size of the channels? If it is, then send however message, many messages are sitting in the channel that I have not sent so that it then increments the the uh, then increments the the IO buffer in for each of those until they match. Uh, so that's the reason why it's got that weird logic in there where it does this minus row and then goes backwards is because if, you know, let's say there's 13 in the channel, then I want it to send the message first that's number 11 and then number 12 and then 13, right? So you have to actually make sure that it sends it in the correct sequence. So that's what all of this does. Could have done it with more traditional if then else, you know, if compared, you know, greater than and less than in there. But I felt like being fancy because I wanted to type less that that day. Uh, <laughs> that's really what it came down to. I didn't feel like typing that, you know, like four times. Uh.
the choices you make while you're programming. So anyway, I'm, again, not entirely certain that this is the right place to do this. I know that the server network module owns all of the thread-safe buffers. Like, this is actually where this object lives, right? It's right here in this scope and on this thread. Oh, no, I got to go. <laughs> it's all good, man. Oh, no. Well, yeah, no, let me let me finish this up real, real quick then. Well, all right, so yeah, really quick. the server side has to have a bunch of additional threads. One of them is that it has to have a listening thread. So we spawn a server thread, um, which is what this logic does right here. It does the same kind of thing as the other one does. First, we say, do we have an active server thread? If not, then create the server thread right here. The next block of this checks to see if the thread still exists. If it's joinable, then it exists. If it's not joinable, it'll probably throw a null pointer exception, which I catch, and then just say the active server, the thread is not active anymore. The next time this logic loops through, what'll it try to do? It'll try to make another server thread. <laughs> it's it's basically relentless. If if the listening thread dies, it will it will recreate it almost immediately. You'll see that this code here is actually pretty similar to the to the client code. I, I create a, you know, I initialize the WinSox API, I create a socket, I set the non-blocking IO on the socket. I do a little bit different here where this is the listening port for the server. So the server is listening on port 4800 or 48,000. Uh, and then I bind to that listen socket that I created and then I listen. Again, this is where we do our non-blocking IO. If this were in blocking IO mode, the, game, the, the engine would just stop or the server would just stop right here and wait for a connection. I don't want it to wait for a connection, but I do want to check to see if we actually do have a connection waiting. So the way that this kernel object works is that it's essentially just a queue. When you call listen, it checks to see if there's something on the queue. If there is nothing on the queue, then it would normally block and wait until something hits the queue. When I have it set in non-blocking I.O. mode, it checks the queue. If there's nothing in the queue, it moves on. So then you actually do have to check to see if you have a queue here. This is one of the places where I got to use one of the new fancy techniques. Um, this is called uh, structured binding. So essentially, I return from this function a tuple of of three values, a Boolean, an actual socket, which is a kernel object and a socket address in value. I populate those things and then I make a tuple and return it. If, it. if it's not successful, if there's nothing waiting there, then I return false and null object and nothing, right? And so I basically just say, if I'm successful, I use the return of the success, then in the, in the tuple that I just got returned right here, I've got the value success S and sin, which I can then use. This is what I was talking about, no side effects. While I'm doing side effecty things inside this function down here, I'm returning a side effectless object. All of the information that's necessary, whether it is a successful client connection, the socket itself and the address are all included in the return so much cleaner <laughs> rather than writing those values to like some you know random object somewhere and then going back into you know my other thread and reading those values with no guarantee that those values haven't changed in the in, in the time between right so doing it that way definitely a good way to go about it there um, if i have successfully done this then i create a buffer and then i create a new thread this accept thread and i'm debating whether i want to call it accept thread or not this is naming is one of those things that bugs me i've changed the name of this like five times already and i'm still not satisfied with it 
this is the client thread. <laughs> and that's why I don't like calling it accept thread because the listen thread accepts a connection and then spawns an accept thread for that connection. Maybe it should call it connection thread. That would that would be a good name for it. I think I might be able to live with connection thread. It flows better. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, I like connection thread. Okay, so I pass it a value, you know, for the index of it so that it'll know which, you know, so it gets a copy, you know, of the pointer to the buffers, the thread safe buffers. It has to know what its key is so that uh, it uses the right buffer because <laughs> you know, this buffer collection will have like a bunch of them for every client that's connected. And then I basically do the opposite of what the client does right here. I check receive first and copy that data into the buffer. You know, just a standard buffer right here, you know, one one global buffer. And then the next piece of logic checks the buffer to see if it's not empty and then sends that value back to the client. Um, so it's kind of the opposite of the client. The client checks send and then checks receive. The server checks receive and then checks send. Semantically, there's probably zero difference. And I could probably and likely will at some point set this thing up so that there's like one thread that's handling reading and one hand, one thread that's handling writing. Um, but again, that whole entire thing comes into when I get to the more advanced networking stack doing like IO control uh, completion ports and stuff like that. But yeah, that's kind of the whole overview. What I'm looking at right now is some of the prototype code that I've done in here as I've been trying to expand this, so the original version of it just had this network W string and console string. I then created this IO buffer that gives me a buffer in and a buffer out. I'm actually expanding this now into a buffer in queue and a buffer out queue so that I can have multiple messages stacked up there. And as my as my logic loops through, you know, that 150 millisecond polling time, it'll pull whatever is in there. So ooh, let's see, where's the sample code for... Uh, da, 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 da. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Ah, I've lost it. I don't know where it is. <clears throat> where was I doing that, actually? I don't even remember where I was writing that code at this moment. Uh, is there, oh, no, it's in here. That's right. Yeah, I was uh, I was expanding some of this functionality, right? So right now the set IO buffers in uh, actually adds the message to the queue. And then I've actually got a an out queue version. So I've got the is the out empty, which just returns if the buffer out is literally empty. <laughs> but this one actually calls the queue object. So we return whether the buffer out queue is empty. The STL has a, has that function available on it. And so what I'm working on now is just kind of migrating this stuff from using the, the static, you know, single object, single string buffer to using a queue of them. And then the other piece of it that I'm working on is adding this thread safe channel. So instead of down here on my on my server thread having just this one channel messages vector right here, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be creating a channel buffer object similar to the thread safe buffers, which will then, uh, you know, the code would essentially be this right here. Uh, auto, oh my goodness, channels equals standard make shared. Uh, thread safe channels. 
And there we go. And so the channels object is now going to contain multiple channels for different channels that people can connect to and talk to each other. And uh, I know there's some more stuff that I'm going to need to think through as I go about this. But, uh, you know, that's kind of where I'm at right now is, is I'm going to have the server maintain a list of channels and a list of buffers and and have basically a process that just goes through there and checks, you know, is there anybody connected to this channel that does not have all of the current messages in the channel? If so, send all of those messages. Yeah, it's fun stuff. I've, I've really enjoyed this. This has been about four years of doing this right now to get to this point. Um, and, and I just, I'm, I'm enjoying being at the point where I feel confident that I can write code that does what I want it to do. Uh, most of this code was written over the course of about six weeks with very little debugging or troubleshooting that I had to do other than testing, you know, the actual return values of some of the, you know, some of the kernel objects. Cause those are a little like, they're like totally black box, like figuring out what's going on inside of a kernel object, especially the Winsox API is just, it's scary. I don't like it. And it also explains to me why windows computers are so freaking insecure. <laughs> 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 it, this is one of those things where, you know, 20, 30 years ago before the internet existed, right? You know, Microsoft wrote all of this stuff uh, in, a, in, a, in an environment where, you know, we did have, what was it, Windows 3.1-ish 3, 3 had Windows for Workgroups, which was kind of the mm -hmm. first, you know, built around Landman and NetBIOS and all of those, you know, local area network protocols from back in those days. And so you never really had to think about hackers all that much because, like, none of these computers were connected to billions of other computers across the Internet. You know, you maybe had 20 PCs in your in your network and the chances of, you know, Joe, the accountant hacking your PC was basically zero. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, yeah, I, I, I'm, I heard that Facebook is looking to build a new operating system. I was pretty excited about that. Um, yeah. It's uh, it's 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 an interesting world we live in. I definitely uh, the more I learn about the the internals of the Windows platform, the more I understand why why it is you know why the world is the way that it is. But hey, such is life, right? Exactly. Yeah, when we get these, you know, when we get things like the you know the STL version of uh, of networking, I, I feel more confident in using that. Uh, it's you know, the the reference implementation right now is is Boost IO, um, but I'm not interested in using the Boost library. I prefer personally just to wait until the language innately supports these things. At some point, I'll be able to get rid of all of my Windows api code and platform code and it'll all just be generic right at least that's the dream <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there one day oh, maybe we'll see <laughs> oh, it's pretty exciting when you but see no... stuff microsoft's been doing like uh, you've seen that they open source basically all of their windows ui system no i didn't see that really oh yeah that's that was like last year sometime and they've been making other announcements that are you know kind of along the same lines it's uh i i honestly i feel like they're aiming towards like building Essentially, a Linux-based Windows. That's that's where I see this going. Mm -hmm. You know, this code review was fun. Yeah. Thanks for letting me ramble and babble about it. <laughs> you guys gotta let us know if you want Aaron to do more of these or not. We'll have him come on and just talk, ramble more and more about. Yeah, ramble more and more. <laughs> it's a good way to put it. Cool. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I, personally, I would find you know seeing someone else's code to be very valuable. 
Ah, that's my that's my phone telling me I really need to get going if I want to see Star Wars today. <laughs> it's like, come on, buddy. Time to go. All righty. Well, um, yeah. Yeah, if you want to see more of these, definitely. I, you know, I, I always found it valuable to see how other people do things. And getting into, like, some of the more complex software, like this, where I'm using, you know, multiple objects, multiple threads, doing all kinds of, you know, crazy things, moving data around and copying void buffers and kernel objects and all of that, I, I've had to figure all of this stuff out on my own. So I'm sure it's very unconventional the way that I'm doing things. But, uh, hey, that's what you get when you can't see other people's code, right? Well, that's it. Thanks for listening. You can find all GameDev.TV courses at courses.gamedev.tv slash courses or in the show notes with a 10% discount. Get started with your game development journey today.